Victor, what's up, man? How's it going, Joe? It's going well. So super excited about this conversation. You know, we've got a little bit of background, a little bit of history. I know who you are. I know what you're about, but folks listening probably have no idea who you are. Mm-hmm. So give us a give us a Victor 10,000 foot view. I got you. So Victor Tsado, I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, lived there for about 12 years, moved to America, Nashville, straight to Nashville, Tennessee. Been here ever since, played soccer at um, Trebekah Nazarene University, played semi-professional in Nashville, but international, and on the process of trying to play professional at the moment. Okay. Now, so that's a lot to unpack there from the get-go. Yeah. So you, let's let's take it back to yeah. the day you were born until you were 12 years old. So you, I got you. So Nigeria. Yeah. Talk to us about it. Talk to us about growing up there. What was your childhood like? Okay. Most people listening to this probably don't know anything about Nigeria besides the yeah. fact that it's in Africa. I got you. So I'll start off with just a quick background on Nigeria. I think Nigeria is, we're considered the giants of Africa or whatever. Mm-hmm. Economically, we're probably the strongest African country, like between Nigeria, South Africa, and Egypt consistently. Um, Nigeria is, oh. I think we're the largest oil producers in Africa as well. So we're, it's a more affluent part of Africa in a sense. And mm-hmm. From my background, in a sense, I'll tell you how that plays into my background. So my parents were married for about 10 years before they had me, which was obviously a challenging thing for them because they obviously wanted a kid. Um, Some doctors told my mom she would never have a kid, which was interesting. Um, She kept praying about it. She went to a lot of churches, went to a lot of events, tried a lot of like procedures, and I finally popped up. (laughs) <laughs> 10, 10 years later and so i'm supposed to be like this miracle child or whatever but in nigeria it's um especially back then traditionally it's like a frowned upon thing when a woman can have a child so you understand like yeah. what she went through and the ridicule and all how that plays into her experience as well so she's a very very strong woman so after 10 years um i came out after 10 years and my first year of life I was actually supposed to die. That's what the doctor said. Um, Were you a preemie? No, nah, I had a lung disease. That was really, really bad. My mom said, she said I was in the hospital for about seven months. And she thought, everyone thought I was going to die, but <laughs> I surprisingly made it through. So I guess that's also part of like the miracle aspect of my life as well. So another interesting part about that was when I was, my mom gave birth to me. My dad won the visa lottery like shortly after, like a couple months after. Oh, stop there. Stop there. Yeah. Visa lottery. Visa lottery. Okay. Yeah. Most Americans have no idea what that is. Explain yeah. what the visa lottery is. So pretty much the visa lottery is you put your name into this draw or whatever. Yeah. It's like the Powerball. It, it really is. It's very randomized. It's all chance. My dad played his name and he magically won it. <laughs> <laughs> so he magically won it. So imagine if you... From his position, he's wanted a child for 10 years. Yeah, 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 And he finally gets the child, and they're like, okay, you win the lottery. And obviously, he can't pass up on that opportunity because he's thinking about me. He's thinking about the family. He gets to make a better living yeah. for the family, more opportunities. And he had friends and family that already lived here. So he's like, okay, well, I got to go. You know what I'm trying to say? So yeah, that's already a tough situation for both for even though I'm a child for me and my mom and for him as well, because he's away from. So how old were you? I was like one years old okay. when he won the visa lottery. So he moved over here and he stayed with, um, we had, I think a family friend that lives, they now live in Pennsylvania, but they used to live in Nashville at the time. Mm-hmm. So this was the first place he came to. He, they later moved on, but he just really liked Nashville, kind of stayed here. And the process of bringing, 
the whole family over here is a super long process. Yeah. But ours took longer than usual. Ours took 12 years, which is very long. And why is that? Honestly, I don't know. It was just a combination of a lot of things. Yeah. And for me, as a child, I really didn't understand it because it was like, um, why is it taking so long? You know what I'm trying to say? And because it didn't make any logical sense. My dad had the money to bring us. He wasn't doing anything illegal. Yeah. And it just didn't make sense. I, my mom still hasn't explained fully how that worked. But I remember one time we, we, we were called to the embassy. And this was like about seven years into when I was like seven, eight. And there was, we have, I have a stepsister or whatever, but she's also my cousin. Mm -hmm. So my parents adopted her when she was younger to get her away from the village and mm -hmm. bring her to the, to the city in Lagos or whatever. And so they tried to bring her to America as well. And that was like a big problem because the person that did adoption papers in Nigeria made fake ones, oh. which pretty much screwed everything. And this yeah. person was supposed to be like my, my mom trusted a person to do this and she shows up with the papers and they're like, well, this, this isn't legit. This is wrong. So they turned us away. So obviously they, they gave me a visa, but they turned my mom and them away. So I'm not going to go without my mom, you know? Yeah. So, um, so that delayed the whole process again, because you go to the back of the line pretty much because especially with that type of incident happening, they're thinking you're doing something illegal or trying to smuggle her here and sex trafficker and all that type of stuff. So, it was a tough situation. And for me, it was just like, I got to the point where I was just so frustrated. I was like, man, I don't even want to go anymore. Like, yeah. I'm building a life here. I have friends here. I was in secondary school. It's like an equivalent to high school here. That's what we call it, like primary, secondary, mm -hmm. university. So I was like, man, I just don't know if I want to go anymore. And I, we just kept praying about it. My parents are very religious. My mom is like a deaconess at church. My dad's a deacon as well. So we're faith is a huge part of our life. So we kept just kept praying about it, kept praying about it. And I remember I went to church with my aunt one day and they were like, um, if you have anything you're praying for, you should sow a seed about it. And I was like young. I was like probably eleven at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't have any money or whatever. So yeah. I put like an outrageous amount of money on the thing and I was like, this is my thing, um, this is my seed so I could come to America or whatever. Yeah. So <laughs> I told my mom about that. Her first reaction was like, "Why would you put that much money?" <laughs> I don't know what it was equivalent to in in dollars. In dollars now, and like Nigeria's um, currency has gone up and down, so I don't know what it is now. But um, so she paid it or whatever. She was like, "I'll pay it." She paid it. Surely enough, about a month later, they called us back to the embassy. Yeah, and we moved here. So pretty much that's how it worked out. And Man. yeah. <laughs> so did, did your, did your stepsister that they adopted ever, yeah. is she here as well? No, she's not here, hmm. but she's married and she's doing really well for herself. And it worked out perfectly for her as well. But yeah. she was obviously, I was devastated by it because we were very close. She was older than me. She's about, I think about 10 years older than me, okay. but she was, we were very close. My mom was heartbroken by it because she felt like it was her fault. Like, mm. especially because the way it played out and, they were they were gonna blacklist um the whole family yeah but thankfully they didn't but it was just a rough situation and i was just very hurt by the situation at the time so i mean it played out and honestly do i think in retrospect it played out how it should have played out i thought spending the first 12 years of my life in nigeria was good because i was old enough and cognizant enough to understand my culture mm -hmm. and my roots and everything and how that affects me and affects everyone around me but i was still like young enough to come to america and still assimilate to american culture and 
kind of balance both of them out, you know? So. Yeah. So you said they adopted her. Sorry, yeah. I'm going back to your I got you. cousin, but yeah. you said they adopted her to get her out of the village. Yeah. Just for better opportunities or was it yes. just dangerous living where they were? It's not dangerous. Um, I've been there a couple of times. It's not dangerous. It's just like the villages are, are like the stereotypical parts of Africa to show you. Yeah. So it's very, very poor. Very rural. Very, very rural, traditional lifestyle. Very traditional lifestyle. It's just, you don't want, you don't want to live there. Yeah. You really don't. So like, as a child, I never wanted to go there because it's like, you don't have, like, don't have TVs. Yeah, it's going back in time and stuff. So my mom's, my dad, it was my dad's sister's child. Mm-hmm. And she's still alive today. Like, she's still alive. She, she still lives in the village. But it was one of those things where my parents were like, let's, let's adopt her. her. A, t- a chance. Exactly. Let's bring her, bring her to the city. She could go to school and we'll take care of her. And my mom, she's a very, like, caring person and, in Nigeria, we had like a house, and my mom would take in like seven people. Okay. Yeah, like le- like legit. Like the house I lived in, in Nigeria had like seven people, from uncles to aunts to yeah. cousins that were just staying with us. And she's feeding all these people, and she's making finding a way to make it work. And even people that were not even family, there was like a couple of people that were not legit family. They were just friends from church that lived with us for a long period of time. So that just shows you like my mom's perspective on life and giving and all that type of stuff. So character. Yeah, exactly. So, so what was it like living in Nigeria in the city? You know, yeah. Again, the, the stereotype people have of Africa, which is so stupid because Morocco Mm -hmm. and Ethiopia are both in Africa. Yeah. Different. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's, it's like saying, you know, Alaska and, and, uh, Guatemala are both North, North yeah, America. Exactly. But they're completely different. So yeah. what was it like growing up in Nigeria? So like like you said, everyone looks at Africa in a holistic sense, which is weird because you don't look at any other continent in that sense. You don't think like America and Mexico are the same. Yeah, but I would say like Americans just tend to be not very well educated around the world That's true, anyway. Absolutely. It's like yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're going to Asia. It's like yeah. Asia's massive. Yeah. Or, or Exactly. Or, or I mean, less so with Europe because yeah. people tend to travel to Europe That's more. That's true. That's true. But even people who haven't traveled, they're like, oh, you're going to Europe. It's yeah. like Sweden. It's like, no, I'm going to Greece. Yeah. <laughs> so. Exactly. So, um, Niger- like, Nigeria is a cool place. Um, Lagos in itself is, um, I think it's one of the most popul- populated place, um, cities in the world. should be top 10. Mm-hmm. It's about 21 million people. So, it's massive. It's a huge city. Constantly moving. Traffic is insane or whatever. Yeah. And I just went back in January for my uncle's wedding and I forgot how bad traffic was. I, and I complained about traffic in Nashville, but yeah. like we were trying to go see family on like the other side of town and it legit took us like five hours. And it was just like, <laughs> yeah, it took us like five hours and it's just like a 10 mile trip. So like that just shows you how populated everything is. And it's kind of like New York in a sense, everyone's really ambitious. Everyone's trying to get it. Everyone's constantly moving. It's fast paced. This never slows down. You're just constantly moving. Yeah. So if you grew up in a space like that, you you know how to adjust really quick because there's just so much going on. And like, in a sense, Nigeria was a good place to grow up because it teaches you a lot of things in the sense of like being able to, you know, it heightens your senses in the sense of like being able to like see when someone's trying to run a fast one on you mm. because corruption is like Nigeria is, is, corruption is huge in Nigeria. And for the amount of money that Nigeria has, a lot of people are suffering because it's on a few hands. Exactly. It's in a few hands and they don't disseminate it to the people and disparity of wealth is huge. So you're either, either like pretty well off and, or you're really poor. So like the good thing about that is my family was a mixture of both. So I had family that was like really, really rich. 
So I got a perspective into that type of lifestyle. I would, my, my mom's sister's husband's like really rich. He's like a banker, mm-hmm. does a lot of business stuff. And a couple other family members are just like really wealthy. And there's like a couple other families that are, that, they're, they're doing better now. But like back then, wasn't wealthy at all. And they were struggling and stuff. So, and obviously their family. So you spend time. And yeah, me and my mom were probably, my mom was probably middle class, closer to well off than the bottom. But you spend time with both sides. So you see like the disparity or whatever of how like you get two different versions of Nigeria or different versions of Africa in a sense, because the rich parts, like legit, everything you have in America, you have there. Yeah. Like legit every single thing you TVs, PlayStation. I had a PlayStation 3 when I was in Nigeria. Yeah. I had all that. I was playing FIFA. I was doing whatever I want. I had internet, internet. everything was there. And the poor side, you barely have, have nothing. nothing. You have to like take a bucket and go fetch water to shower. You have to just stuff like that. It's just, it's a struggle. You know what I mean? So Lagos, like Nigeria, Lagos is just so fast paced. And when there's a lot of corruption around you, you just, you know you have to protect yourself in a sense. So you get super aware and you get this street sense in a sense because you know like things are not what they always seem. So you learn how to always look beneath the surface. And I think I'm thankful for that because in the spaces I've found myself in, I think I've always been able to like notice when things aren't somebody's trying to yeah be deceitful and but it's, it's funny yeah. what you mentioned about the extreme poverty and the extreme wealth. So yeah. last time I was in Bosnia in October of 2017, mm-hmm. I will never forget this as long as I live. My dad and I are in the car, so we got a rental car. Yeah. We're just chilling. We're at a red light. In front of us is a half a million euro Ferrari. Yeah, exactly. Behind us yeah. is like a 1978 Yugo. Yeah. I don't think that thing is worth 500 euros. Crazy. And both of these people exist on the same same exact street. Exactly. And you're like, what in the hell is going on right now? It's nuts. That's pretty much how it is. So like, like you said, like I've seen Ferraris, those type of cars in Nigeria. And I've seen people that are like on bikes. The Flintstones car. Exactly. And people that are making like, just like, like I went back for my uncle's wedding and just like seeing how some people are living. It's just like, it's really sad. You know what I'm trying to say? And we, my uncle lives in like, um, like a really, really nice neighborhood. He's pretty well off. And just right outside of that, it's like these slums or whatever. Like you have to drive through them every day. Yeah. And there was a soccer field around there. And I, I wanted to play just to stay in shape. And you just see how people are living. And like, it's like, these people are barely surviving. But a couple miles away is this really nice neighborhood or whatever. Yeah. So it just makes you, it gives you perspective on a lot of things for sure. Yeah, America's unique in the sense that there's a lot of segregation of wealth within yeah. our communities, mm-hmm. the sub- suburbanization of America. Like yeah. here in, in Nashville, not so much today because of gentrification and neighborhoods yeah. changing over. But 10 years ago, if you were wealthy, you live in Brentwood. Yeah. Exactly. You live in you live in Williamson uh-huh. County. You live in Green Hills. If you're poor, you live in East Nashville. Mm-hmm. And they don't commingle. Yeah. And it's just kind of how it was. Whereas yeah. in other parts of the world, what I've seen is just more of like fluidity yeah, like, exactly every couple blocks you're like oh shit yeah exactly <laughs> you're like whoa what if like you take one bad step you're in a bad part of town yeah. pretty much that's exactly where it is so like when i was younger my parents would be like don't walk over here but like this neighborhood is really nice i'm like what do you mean don't walk over here they're in the same vicinity but just like politics over there is just grimy people are 
Like, for example, like it's very common thing for like cops to stop you in Nigeria. And you pay the ticket to exactly. them Exactly. Yep. And you give them yep. cash to go. Yep. Not even a ticket. You didn't do anything wrong. Yep. There are places that they just stop you just so for the sole purpose of trying to get money off you. Yep. And I, had, I had to explain that to my mother-in-law not too long ago. Yeah. She just couldn't understand. And I was like, no, I'm, I've watched us get pulled over. Yeah. And my dad pay cash. Exactly. It's to just, the police. And they, like the officers expecting it. And like no one argues about it. It's just like a known thing. Okay. You're going to pay these guys this yes, amount of money and you just keep it, keep it going. So just like politics is super grimy there. Um, Do you feel like kids mature quicker over there? Definitely. Definitely. Talk, talk to me about that. I think because you get exposed to so much, especially if you're in like a tough part, you're having to take care of your little brothers, your parents are struggling, so they don't have the time to invest in you. Mm-hmm. So a lot of kids are naturally in the space, especially if you're the oldest one, in the space where they have to grow up quicker than others because they're playing a parental role to their siblings, siblings as well. And like anything, if you expose a lot of crime, a lot of poverty, it just you look at life a lot differently. You appreciate things a lot quicker. I mean, a lot more. And you're not in a space where you can't grow up quick. Like you're not in a space where you can't afford to not grow up quickly because you have no choice. You have no choice. You either survive or yeah, things will happen to you. You know what I mean? So it's one of those things where it's just like your environment kind of everything predicates off your environment and you adapt. You know what I mean? Now, were there any... Ethnic tensions. So, for example, I know Nigeria is not just yeah. one group of yeah. people. It's mm-hmm. multiple tribes, multiple yeah. cultures, multiple ethnicities. Yeah. I know in the big city like you, it's probably more of a hodgepodge mishmash. Yes. You probably have more ethnic tensions in villages, which yes. is more clearly defined. Exactly. But were there any things like that? Yeah, definitely. I'm, well, it was a lot when I was super young. There was like a tribe that was trying to break away from mm-hmm. the country and make their own country. Yeah. So there was like fighting for that. And recently, it's just been like. In the last, I say about last seven years has been like the Boko Haram, mm-hmm. whatever. I don't know if you're familiar with them. It's like a extremist Muslim. Yeah, they're group. more in the north. Right? They're more in the north. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So they they're trying to get their own Muslim state or whatever, and they just bomb churches and it starts a lot of trouble. And there's certain places. I remember I went back like seven years ago. There's certain places in the north like. If you go there and they stop you and they're like, are you a Christian? And you said, yes, they will legit kill you. Yeah. yeah. So like my mom, I remember when I was going back last time, my mom was like, you just got to be careful in this space, this place. Don't go there. Don't go there. So it's it's interesting stuff. And Nigeria is such a, in the tribal sense, it's such a diverse place that because there's like English is the main language, mm-hmm. but there's also like a thousand different dialects and stuff. Yeah, because it was created after colonialism, you know, after yeah. the big colonial powers left mm-hmm. they didn't break down countries based on their actual ethnic yeah. identity they just said you guys exactly. in this square are now in one country yeah exactly <laughs> um so it, it creates all these these issues and problems I've, I've i've met some nigerians that are uh greek orthodox that mm-hmm. i've talked to them about like yeah. their background I've talked to a lot of ethiopians because they, they tend to be orthodox if they're yeah. christian uh-huh. um so i've met some of them through that yeah um and just learning about like these countries and you know, how just diverse in almost the worst sense they yes, are. Exactly. It's just, it's crazy. Like even the place, like the state that mm-hmm. we're from, it's called Kogi State. There's a bunch of tribes, like so many tribes, even like in the small village, my mom and them grew up in, there's like so many different tribes and they just, they're completely different from each other. Yeah. So Do they like, look different. Could you tell them apart by looks? 
certain ones, certain ones. I think most of the northern tribes, you could tell them because they look, they look more maybe Egyptian. Or they look more Egyptian like, and yeah. Somalian, and then they do like like then they would like me. You know what I'm trying yeah. to say? So you can, but yeah, you can. I think like there's an Igbo tribe. You could you could sense when somebody's Igbo. There's a Yoruba tribe. They're usually darker. Mm-hmm. You can sense when they're Yoruba. So you can, but you can in a sense. You know yeah, what I mean? yeah. Like. If we're all in America, I can't really tell if I see. I can tell if it's a Nigerian, but I can't tell if he's like Igbo, Hausa, Yoruba. Interesting. But if I'm in Nigeria, I, I become more hyper aware. I'm like, okay, yeah, he's probably Igbo. He's probably Hausa yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Could you tell by names at all? Yes, definitely. You okay. can definitely tell by names. Okay, so would your name be a, a very distinctive name of a certain? Tri- My name is distinctive in the sense that, like, our tribe is very small. Mm-hmm. Like, the, there's three big tribes in Nigeria: it's Igbo, Hausa, and Yoruba. Mm-hmm. Our, ours is like in the middle belt, so mm-hmm. ours has ours has like hints of each culture in it. Okay, so it's not like one a tribe where you like mention it and, and, everybody, and everybody will know. It's like one of the small tribes or whatever. So yeah, my name is not necessarily you can't really classify it with um Igbo House or Yoruba. So most people be like, well, what is, where is well, that yeah. from? You know what I mean? So. Yeah. So like my name Yavitsa Djurjevic, yeah, is exclusively Serbian. There's um, no way you could confuse it. With I anything else, Djurjevic in particular is very Serbian. But yeah. my dad, his name is Milan. Yeah. If you didn't know his last name, his first name could be Muslim, could yeah. be Croat, could uh, be Serb. But then the last name would give him away as Serb. You. So there's, I just know there's in different cultures like there are certain names that very exclusively give you away yeah. almost immediately. I got you. Um, and then there's like more ambiguous yeah. names. And that's interesting you said that because I was having a conversation. Because one of my best friends, he's from Bosnia, his name is Gigo, and his mm-hmm. last name is Torkovic. Mm-hmm. And that's a, like, that's a Muslim name. Immediately. Yeah, exactly. Say so he's Muslim. But um, we were talking about soccer, and he was like, I've always noticed he supports like Serbian players, some Switzerland players. Because um, you can tell by the name. Yeah, Bosnian players, um, Ser- Serbian players, Croatian players. I'm like, how many countries do you have, dog? Yeah. And I was just trying to mess with him. He's like, man, we're all from the same place, really. And that's what he's saying. He had to explain how it all worked. Yeah, and told me the history behind it, but it's actually pretty interesting. Yeah, we all come from the same tribe, and we speak the same language. We look exactly the yeah. same, but we were broken up in like six countries. Yeah, it's Kosovo, one of them as well. Yeah, Kosovo, Kosovo. Montenegro, Macedonia, yeah, Croatia, Serbia, Slo- uh, Slovenia. Jeez, that's a lot. Yeah, and that's the, he told me like he was like, imagine if all these teams put their soccer team in the one, and I was like, man, if you really do think about it, they'd be bombing. They so would hard. be destroying people because yeah. like Croatia did really well in the World Cup, but if you combine. All of them. all these top players from all these teams, they'll be like France, pretty much. Yeah. So. Well, and it's it's. I mean, like Serbia beat the U.S. for bronze yesterday in basketball. Yeah, like, exactly. I mean, <laughs> you know what sport they dominate? Which no one? bull crap. Uh, water polo. Seriously, I'm not kidding. In uh, <laughs> in in the 2018 Olymp, it was 2018, right? The Olympics. When was the last one? So it was, I think so. Or 16, 17, I think. I'm not. Whichever sure, one was the last yeah. summer Olympics. Water polo. There's something about it. Yeah. The final four uh-huh. were Serbia, Montenegro, Croatia, and Slovenia. Jeez. All four countries. <laughs> and all crazy. the last names were just something, something bitch. Yeah. Like it, was just, it was over and over. Yeah. Well, that's, it, that's, that's interesting. Anyway, sorry. Back to – so you come to America. You're 12. You come to America. Yeah. You come to Nashville, Tennessee. Yeah. What happens? What's the culture shock? What's the experience? What's Were you prepared for it? Man. To be honest, when I first came, I didn't want to come because, like, I was 12. I got used to Nigeria. I was 
like secondary school, that's when you start becoming yourself. You start making like close, close friends. And now you're coming to middle school in America. Which yeah, is middle now. school. And they take you back a grade or whatever. Oh, really? Because our, our system is like one year ahead. Mm-hmm. So like it was weird because like a lot of the things I already learned in school, they pushed me back to seventh grade and I was learning the same things all over again, Yeah, which was interesting. But like, I mean, my age group was rightfully seventh grade. But to be honest, it wasn't. It was a transition culturally, but it wasn't as bad as people would make it seem in the sense of like, like I said, I grew up and I saw, I got exposed to both the rich side and the poor side of Nigeria. So a lot of things I had there, I have here, you know what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to say? So that kind of helped. I think culturally was the biggest part, like what to do, what do you say, and how do you interact with people in that sense? How did 12-year-olds here act versus 12-year-olds in Nigeria? They're just a lot more disrespectful. Really? Yes. Ooh, elaborate on that. A lot, I, like in Ni- Nigeria, there's just certain things you don't do traditionally. Okay. Like when the way you interact with adults, you always would say like, yes, ma'am. And like my mom would get mad at me if I like try to like said hi to somebody without saying good morning or mm. good afternoon, ma'am. Or like if I greeted them, if I didn't like bend my head or whatever, just mm. to show them respect or whatever. So, like, it was just, there was, like, that system that was set in place where, okay, this is how you act to adults, and this is how, like, even if you think you're right, and I, I think it has good pros and cons, there's, there's a toxic version of that as well, because it doesn't create a space where children can, like, have conversations with adults and, like, try to, like, get their points across as well, which I think it's is needed it's, yeah. and important sometimes. But it was like, if an adult says something, you don't question it. Mm. And for me... Which was very hard because I'm like not confrontational, but I'm very inquisitive, and yeah. I don't necessarily like when people are just telling me to do something without giving me the explanation of why I'm doing it. Or yeah, you'll gladly do it, but you need to know yeah, why. I need to know That's why I'm doing it, and I like to question everything. And I'm I'm pretty stubborn person in general, so like my mom would always get mad at me for like questioning stuff. She's like, "Well," and like the explanations just wouldn't match up in my head. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. So it was just like when I came here, it was. Remember, I used to go to class and I used to see like kids talk really like just aggressively to teachers and stuff. And in Nigeria, you would get like they would spank you for that. <laughs> like they would not even just spanking; they would get like belts out and they would get you get like, ass whooping. Yeah, I've gotten so many whoops because, like I said, I'm a, I had a smart mind when I was a kid. I was stubborn. Yeah. And if you like talk back to a teacher, like your parents are not going to come here and be like, "Oh, why'd you hit my kid?" My mom was one of those people that um, she would come to school and be like, hey, be extra hard on Victor if he does this. I remember I, I got myself, this is a story actually, I got myself in trouble one time. Like soccer has always been my biggest passion. So we had soccer practice, but we were also like studying for like, it was called common entrance. Okay. And that's how you go from, from primary, primary to school secondary. to secondary school. So is it broken down on different types of secondary schools based on your, your results on that? Yes, okay. exactly. Yep. So it's a huge test. So like yeah. it could change the trajectory of your life. In yeah, sense. you either go into a trade school exactly. or university, yeah. gymnasium type mm-hmm. deal. Or, yeah, or yeah. like the levels of schools are different. You know what I mean? So this is a big test. And I'm like, I don't really like care about this. Stuff. You know what I'm trying <laughs> to say? <laughs> and like I want to just play soccer. So I remember we had practice and we were supposed to have – um, a study, it was a Saturday. We had a study session like halfway through the practice. So it was like, okay, you could, you have to go to halfway, you could go to practice, but you have to make sure you, you go to the study session. That's what my mom told me. So I went there halfway. I was like, all right, I'm going to go in there. 
I went in there and we're about, we're doing like a practice test and the teacher left. And I was like, man, I knew the answers were in the back of the book. Oh. So <laughs> Richard stupid by me. So I wrote down all the answers and instead of me like playing it off, I just left after like five, 10 minutes and went back <laughs> to play. And the teacher is not stupid. So she comes back and she's like, where's Victor? And she sees me playing. So she calls me and she's, she was close to my parents and, my mom comes to pick me up from school that day. The only day she comes to pick me up, my uncle's always pick me up from school. Oh. And she's like, no, no, no. Like, they tell my mom about this. And she's like, nah, you guys have to whoop him right now. <laughs> so, like, she's, like, encouraging the teachers to, like, whoop me. And after I get a whooping there, I go back home. Yeah. And I have a bunch of uncles. My mom has, like, seven siblings. Oh, crap. And, like I said, all of us lived in the same house, in a sense. So, yeah. all my uncles are just destroying Pissed me, off. man. Yeah. And it's just, oh, it was just, that just shows you how culturally like those like you can't question anybody yeah, yeah, over yeah. there you know what i mean so Dang, over man. here people were just talking crazy to teachers and stuff and i was just like ah if i did that there would be consequences for that so do you feel like you were more disciplined than american kids yeah definitely because i definitely, definitely felt that way when i came to america a lot different a lot more disciplined and i think even in the sense of school like when i came here like i said we we're a bit ahead with mm-hmm. the way it was set up when I came, I just I was so disciplined that like I already knew all these things, but I was just so focused when I came over here. And when I was younger, I, I used to mess around. But after I moved from primary to secondary school, that's when I actually like started taking education serious. Put some initiative into exactly. It. I was like, all right, I got to I got to start moving now. You know what I mean? So when I came here, I saw like a lot of kids were just goofing around. And for me, I think I think statistically, Nigeria is like the immigrant group with like the highest education yeah, the, levels or whatever. Not just that, uh, Nigerian men in particular in the United States yeah. are the wealthiest, most educated ethnic group in America. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't even know that. Like that, so. Ni- Nigerians, I have never yeah. ever met a Nigerian who does not hustle his ass off. Exactly. So it's like, just- They open up a liquor store. Yep. They're running a bank. Just, <laughs> it's just a group of hustlers, to be honest. So like, it just shows you how much- we put like how much like importance we put on education. Yes, so they're me, doctors, they're attorneys because exactly. they force their kids to like exactly. take education. So, but there's also like a bad part to that. So yeah, when I'm coming from Nigeria, and a lot of times from our culture, like education is your way out. Mm-hmm. People, there are very talented people that could do other stuff like music, sports, or whatever. But it's always like okay, this yeah. is a. Uh, I met a lot of medical residents. Yes, at Mahari, who yeah. like got their medical degrees in Russia and then would come over here and do like, yeah. which is interesting. Just route. weird routes. And that's another thing. Nigerians are like nomads. They just go from this yeah. spot to this country. Like I've, I've been to a lot of countries in the world and you always find a huge Nigerian population, even like in the randomest places like yeah. Puerto Rico or like places like, I were like, why, like, why are you over here? You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? But, um, so education is huge for us, but like the typical routes are usually like, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be an engineer, or a banker. Because bankers make huge money in Nigeria. So bankers kind of tied to accounting yeah. in a sense. But like I think in a sense it's a good thing, but it also stifles a lot of creativity. Creativity and people that they're not saying go be an artist. Yeah. Like a lot of people don't have like I think we're all subjective beings and we don't have we all don't have the same routes. And it just creates a space where kids feel like they have or like operate from this contrived view where it's like, I have to be these things. And yeah. it's like such a seclusive way of looking at life and constricted way of looking at life because they don't fully get to like 
explore their full personalities because they feel like they have to fit into this mold. Mm. And I think it, it doesn't come from a, like a bad place from the parents. It doesn't come from a place of malice or anything. It's just like, I think they look at it statistically. They're like, okay, these are like the most positions and like the jobs in life where you could do the best for yourself, have the most security. And it makes sense to like want your kids to have those things. But it also stifles a lot of like creativity, like you said, and forces people to be in a mold that doesn't fit for everyone. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. So you obviously play soccer through high school. You played yeah. soccer in college and then you, uh, you went to Costa Rica, right? Yes, I did. I did. Okay. What? Talk to us about that. Because <laughs> yeah. soccer, co- college soccer, I've had tons of people here yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. college sports. It's all basically the same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But like going to Costa Rica and playing professionally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. talk to us about that experience. So, I mean, pretty much soccer has always been my biggest passion since I was a kid. My mom said when I was little, I never played with any toys. I just wanted a soccer ball. So I think it's always innately been me in a mm-hmm. sense. Like every from as far as I can remember, that's the only thing I wanted to do. Like I used to get bad grades and skip classes because I wanted to play soccer. So that showed you how how passionate I was. And when I came here, um, which was another reason why I didn't want to come here because I was like, I want to go to England because that's just more soccer teams there. Soccer is so bigger there. Soccer academies. Soccer academies. And I was about to go to an academy in Nigeria. My mom was pushing for it and I was pushing for it as well. But that's when we came here. So I was like, man, that's my chance of going pro gone. But soccer is not bigger in America. So I came here and I got I started playing middle school soccer, which helped. You're probably dominating that. I was, but I wasn't. Oh, you weren't? I, I was. The thing was, I was really raw. So I started as a seventh grader, obviously. Yeah. And I played really well. But I was there were so many things about the game I didn't know. Because in a sense, the way you play soccer in Nigeria is a lot different. It's like. It's more street ball. It's more street ball. So you're very raw. And I was very skilled. I could do a lot of things on the ball. But I didn't know how to play 11 v 11. I didn't know, like, the tactics that was mm. involved. So you were just, like, raw athlete. Exactly. Right? So I was, like, really fast. I could dribble. I could keep the ball as long as I want. But I didn't know when somebody was making a run. I play here I defensively where I need to be. So I needed to learn all those little tweaks. So seventh grade, which was also, it helped me assimilate to America better because I naturally had that group of, group of people that was like, okay, this is what you do. This is what you don't do. And they're all from different countries. So it was like similar to my experience. So went through, did that. And one of my friends was just as big in soccer as I was. And he was a year older than me. He's like, I found this travel soccer team. And he was like, this is good. Um, it's better than high school soccer. I was like, man, it's like they teach you a lot. He went in one practice. I mean, they teach you a lot of tactics. I feel like I'm getting better. I was like, man, that's what I need. Because I knew I had the skill. I always had naturally had the skill. So I went to one of the practices with him. I was playing with the older guys. And I was like, man, I need to play on this team. So he connected me to the coach in my age group that went went on, did, did really well. But there was also like a top team and I was on the second team. And it's because I was just so raw. And the funny thing about it is one of the coaches now, coaches like, He's like connected to like the semi-pro team that I play for, that oh. I played for. And he always tells me, like, I always I regret that I didn't take you when you were younger mm. and all this type of stuff. But in this position, I was very raw and he saw the potential, but he didn't know I would develop like I did. So yeah. like I was very talented, but I wasn't one of those kids where everyone was like, okay, he's definitely headed for the top. Like yeah. everyone was like, he has potential. But at the end of the day, it was, came down to me pushing myself and doing the extra work. So went through that process and those guys were better than me at that time. And I was like, man, I need to find a way to catch up to this level. And good thing about it is I've always been a pretty introspective person. I've always been like a guy where that would go around and be like, hey, coach, how can I get better? What do I need to do to get to that next level? That was like the question I always asked. 
And I had a coach back then whose name was Coach Mark Champion. And I was really skinny at the time, which is weird because I'm a big yeah. I'm a big soccer player now. So yeah, yeah. he was like, man, you need to get stronger. You're weak. You're... Yeah, I was about to say, you look more like a cornerback. Right? Yeah, he was like, yeah. he was like, you're small. You're weak. You need to get stronger. You have all the skill. But if you get the strength, it will take you to a new level. So I started hitting the weights. And this was like about sophomore year, high school. Started hitting the weights. I hit like a huge growth spurt. And I came back. I think I grew like seven inches in the summer. Damn. I put on like 40 pounds or whatever. So like I became a new person pretty much. And that's when my soccer career started taking off because physically I became so much, I started growing into my body physically. I became so much better than everybody. And my work was matching up with the way my body was growing as well. So I was putting in the extra work because I, I saw the level I wanted to get to and I wasn't there yet. And I was like, all right, this is how I'm going to get there. Started getting extra coaching. Kept doing better, and I moved to another travel team, which was – I'm just trying to give you, like, the whole yeah, journey yeah. to Costa Rica because yeah. it all plays, in fact, in, in part. So moved to another travel team right before I was going to try out for that top team or whatever, and because a lot of my teammates in high school played for this team, and I had that bond with them. They were all lived around me. They all came from similar backgrounds, a lot of Kurdish guys, a lot of Middle Easterns, a lot of Africans, and it was like, man – and it was also cheaper. Mm-hmm. Travel soccer is very expensive, and which yeah. is why I think American so- soccer hasn't improved, hasn't progressed like everywhere else because it ostracizes a lot of kids that cannot afford to pay that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the best talent usually comes from areas that are impoverished because yeah. that's their only hope that they have. But so I was like, I'm going to go to this team. The coach lived down the street from me, literally walking distance. And I was like, this team is really good. It's cheaper. I'm still, I'm still going to get a really good coach and I'm going to feel more connected because the team I was playing for, they were cool, but it was straight white guys. I was the yeah, only yeah, black yeah. guy. And it was cool, but like I couldn't relate in a sense. Yeah, it's different talking to – yeah, it's different yeah. dealing with some kids who are from the Middle East or Africa And these are like really Europe rich kids. Or, yeah, yeah, who are like immigrants versus like the rich kids. Again, nothing wrong, yeah. with, nothing wrong with growing up in an environment, yeah. but it's just – you're going to have a harder time relating. Exactly. So I couldn't really relate. I would go to their house. Their houses were huge. They lived in Brentwood and all this stuff. So I was like, I'm going to go here. Went there. Um, we had a couple good seasons. We had a, like we had an interesting team in a sense because the whole system was set up by the coach. His name is Coach Matt. He's one of my mentors to this day. He's, it was called Ultimate Goal Ministry. So it was like a way to give kids that – didn't have the money and the resources to play for the big travel teams, a chance to play for pretty much minimal to no cost. I think I was paying like $200 for a whole season yeah. while I was paying like $2,000 at, yeah. at the other place. So it was a big difference. And so we had a bunch of talented kids. We had a couple of players where I was like, okay, this guy has the potential to go pro, but the environments we all grew up in kind of swayed some people along the side. There was, this guy, he was unbelievable. I don't want to say his name because he might be listening or whatever, yeah. but he just, every time he had a big opportunity, he just would go out, go out and do something stupid and yeah. not maximize his potential. But to give you clarity, like we had players that would like show up from jail or whatever, like they would get bailed out and they will come <laughs> in the game. So it showed you like yeah. how like interesting the space we all grew up playing with. And like all the players came from, we had a lot of kids that were just like in, gang stuff. There's like a lot of like brown pride and yeah. Mexican gangs and all that type of stuff. So he got, I got exposed to a lot in that space, but it was good. You know what I mean? I got to see, okay, that's not where I want to be. Yeah. This is where I want to be. But we had a lot of talent. We were really good. I got a lot better. He's the assistant coach at Trevega actually. And he was just like, I think he was the first person that like really showed me how good I could be. 
Mm-hmm. And he, I, I used to ride with him to practice. So we'd have a lot of one-on-one conversations. And I knew I was good, but he was like, Victor, you could really do this at a high level. You could do it at a college level. But he said, also, I think you could do it at a professional level if you continue to progress. So it was like he was the one that set that fire in me. I was like, man, he's seen a lot of players in this time. If he thinks I could do this, then I need to, like, truly do it. So he would give me extra training sessions. I still trained with him, like, last week or whatever. Yeah. And so just I got a lot better. Treveca. Obviously, he was at Cisco, so I had to offer from Trevecca from when I was like a junior, junior in college. But I didn't want to go to Trevecca because it was like a Division two school. I was like, man, yeah, I feel like I could do better. And he says, I think you could do better, but I feel like this would be a good fit for you because it's a Christian school and it's close to home. Your parents can come see you play and all that. And I had a couple of schools that were looking at me, a couple of Division one schools, but Trevecca offered me the most money. It just made the most sense. Yeah. So Ended up going to Trevecca reluctantly. I didn't want to go there at first. <laughs> yeah. And had interesting first two years. I was injured for pretty much the whole season. Like okay. freshman year, came in the preseason and pretty much came in out of shape because I didn't know the level I was getting myself into. I thought, yeah. okay, this is just regular conditioning. I remember the first day of preseason, I drank like chocolate milk, like 30 minutes, Ooh. ate a big breakfast, 30 minutes for a session. I was like, all right, we're just going to go out there, one more play. I could do that. Threw up everywhere. And oh. I remember all the freshmen, were, it's just like a shock. Like, yeah. I could barely walk. Everyone's like passing. I was like, oh, geez, what am I getting myself into? So the first year, but after I got passed through that, I started playing really, really well. Like, really, really well. I remember coach was like texting me. He was like, Victor, you're really going to help us out this season. I remember my second game as a freshman, I started, which was rare for a freshman. It was me and another guy, my roommate, I just moved out, Noah. We started as freshmen. And boom, second game of the season. I just, my first start, playing pretty well, had a chance to score, missed it. Next play, I go into a tackle, guy crunches me, Ugh. my ankle. Ugh. I'm like, first time I've ever hurt my ankle before. I'm like, oh, geez, what is this? So I'm thinking this is like a one-week injury. I'm limping for a couple of days. I try to come back earlier than expected. I think the training staff, the medical staff didn't diagnose it as correctly as they should. So I kept trying to come back on the field like, way too early and I would go into a tackle or like try to hit the ball really hard and my ankle would just be gone again. So mm. I ended up missing the whole season. So that was just like a season that was pretty much thrown in the trash can, which is frustrating. Came back the next year, um, came back in preseason really, really good shape. Cause I knew what to expect now. So I got a trainer, came back in really good shape. Coach was like bragging about me to other coaches. Like if Victor came back really in shape this year, he's going to have a big season for us and doing really well. Um, what happened? Doing really well. I get a red card for a fight. Oh, no. For a fight. Stupid decision, man. It was like we're losing the game. This team was just like our rivals. It was like a dirty game. Some guy like punched me in the face on a corner kick one time. And I was just frustrated. Everyone was frustrated. The game was about to end. It was like in a corner. Anyway, like guys try to waste time or whatever. So I hit him from behind. I like just nudged him, but he flew in the air to make a scene. Ah! And I'm like, come on, man. And it was like right in front of the bench. And it like, it was like one minute left. So like the whole bench just charged at us. And I was like, what is going on here? So I was like in that mood where I was like, all right, it's about to go down. So I was like, I, my eyes got red. I was like, okay, we're going. So like, I wasn't going to back down. I wasn't going to go backwards. And I'm just looking at all of them and it gets pretty crazy. No punches were thrown. It was just like, a scrum or whatever. And the captain grabs me. He takes me under, under the bench or whatever. And he's like, coach is pissed at me. And he's like, you're, I will end your career. You would never play for this um, 
um, college anymore if you ever do that again. He's just destroying me, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm really angry. So, like, I don't want to be hearing that at that moment. I'm like, I remember one of my, the captain was like, kept just holding me down so I wouldn't say anything back. And so I'm suspended four games or whatever. This so is your junior year. My sophomore my year. Sophomore. Suspended four games, so which is that's a lot of the season. I'm like, golly, coach gets over it or whatever. But I'm still spending four games. I come back, first game back, I, my left ankle gets crunched oh, again. Yeah, yeah. So it's just like, oh, I can't catch a break. I'm out for the season again. So I play like three games. I played five games in total in the first two years. Yeah. So coach is like in a position where he's like, okay, Victor, you have to stay on the field, or we're gonna have to go another direction yeah. because like for a business move, it's not the smartest for them. Junior had a really good season. Did well. Had like one injury that kept me off like one game, but had a really good season. Senior had a. That's when I everything started clicking for me. Had a really really good season. I was dominating games. Scored a couple goals from my position, which is you're not really supposed to be a goal scorer. From there, scored a couple goals. Did really well. And it was just one of those things where I was like, okay, school is about to end. Trek is not known for like creating professionals, but it was just like I'm gonna talk to a lot of people about this. Do I get a job or? I felt like I could still do more. I was like, I could, I've not maximized my potential in soccer and I would regret if I don't, you know what I'm trying to say? Because I'm yeah. in my prime and this is the perfect time to do it. So I was like, prayed a lot about it, just a lot of soul searching. I was like, man, I got to do this. This is like, I, I went on a couple of job interviews and I just didn't feel like yeah, yeah, it was yeah. what I was supposed to be doing. I just didn't feel connected. And I did really well in the interviews. It was just like, nah. Got a couple, for me. Yeah, this ain't for me. And I was like, nah. So... Kept playing, played semi-pro that summer, got a lot better. Just talking to coach, everyone was like, man, Victor, you're improving at a really fast rate. You're improving really fast. And talked to my coach, Matt, or whatever, and he was like, Victor, I think you could definitely play at the professional level. If you continue to improve at the level you've been improving in, you could do it. Got connected. One of my friends was, I saw he was in Costa Rica playing or whatever. I was like, what are you doing over there? He's like, man, I'm with this agent or whatever. Um, he's trying to help me my career i was like man can you connect me or whatever talked to the agent seemed like a super nice guy at the time and he was like yeah um i have this connection in costa rica since i've never seen you play um well he saw me play once he's like i think you have potential and he was like but since i haven't seen you in a professional environment it makes sense for me to take you to costa rica i know the level there i could gauge by how you do there how like what level i could push you in in america or whatever or somewhere else I was like, it makes sense. He was like, cost this amount of money. You're going to stay at my place there. His place was really nice and he had other clients there. You're going to stay at my place. You get this amount of meals a day. You have a car to go to practice. It was like, all right, I'm going to invest in myself. Yeah. Saved up a lot of money for a situation like this. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be there for about a month and a half. That's enough time. Because like some trials, you go for like two, three days and you can't really show yourself. I was like, all right, I'm going to do it. My parents are all on board. They're like, you should go. Go do it. And I was like, I told myself, I was like, man, if I go here and I'm going to be completely objective with myself, if I'm just not good enough, then I'm not good. Enough. I'm, I'm going to throw in the towel, hang up my boots. I'm not good enough. I'm not a prideful person in the sense where like, if I'm not good enough for a situation, like a situation, I wouldn't admit it. But I was like, if I can hang with these guys, I would be doing myself a disservice not to pursue it. So I go there and I do really, really well, like okay. better than I, I thought I was going to do. Like I did really, really well. I'm flying. I'm doing doing really well. I'm like, man, I think I could I could really do this. You know what I mean? And because like obviously semi pro is a high level, but every level gets better. So yeah. I'm like, I don't know how. It was just like I think I could do this, but I don't know how I would tra this would translate to professional level. 
did really well. The coach's name was Macho. He really liked me a lot. It was interesting because they all spoke Spanish. I didn't really speak Spanish. So I, there was another guy from Cameroon, but yeah. he lives in Canada. He helped me translate and all this stuff. And he used to tell me, he's like, man, Victor, you're a good player. You could do it. I talked to the agent. He was like, gassed me up. He was like, man, you could definitely do it at this level. We, I see a lot of potential. You could be a big player. So this is where it gets grimy. This is where like the industry is very interesting, especially with agents and stuff. And he was like, tell me all this stuff. But he was he's connected to the to the team. And stuff. So the team wanted to offer me a, a contract for me to play. And he was like, no, nah, I don't think you should take the contract. I'm like, why not? He was like, I was like, you just told me like a month ago, this is a good place to build experience. If you make the team build experience, then you could come back to America, USL, MLS or somewhere. Because like a lot of teams there want experience, like in America, yeah. it's like every other job, everyone's like, what's your resume look like? So I was like, it's a perfect spot to get experience. I could get film. I do well here. I get a transfer. I go and he's like, nah, I don't want you to take the contract because um, it'll put a lot of pressure on you and um, and all this stuff. And I'm like, that doesn't sound right. And like no. I told you, I'm Nigerian, so I can tell when someone's trying to play a fast one on me. So I was like, man, this don't sound right. And it was just kind of like, oh, you need to come back for another six months. But he wanted me to keep paying the same amount of mm. money that the six months would have cost or whatever, like the first month cost. Yeah. And the thing is like Costa Rica doesn't have a lot of money. So yeah. the team would have been paying me and how agents work, they get 10% of that salary. Mm. So he would have made more money, off made more them. money paying me paying. And there was a lot of people in the situation he, that I was in that were with him. And I'm like, I need to talk to these guys that used to work with him and don't work with him anymore. And they were like saying the same thing, like, man, he just kind of does all that stuff just to make money off you. I'm like, I'm not stupid, man. So I'm like, I told him, I'll think about it. I'm going to go home, talk to my parents. So I was like, I'm going to go back to America. So I went back to America, talked to talk to my parents. And they were like, if you have a bad feeling about this, then you shouldn't go ahead with it. Like, trust your gut. And I was like, yeah. And one of my friends has been playing professionally since he was like 15. So he was like, I thought, I still coach for him now, like nowadays. And he was like a perfect person to talk to. I was like, hey, this is a situation. You've been dealing with agents since you're a young child. And I told him the breakdown. He was like, to be honest, I think he's trying to screw you over just to make money off you. He was like, he probably will get you somewhere, but he's trying to make maximize as much money as he makes off you. And he was like, that's a possibility. He doesn't even get you anywhere. And I'm yeah. like, he's like, there's a lot of agents that do that to kids in this because they think you don't know anything about the industry. You're eager to get an opportunity. And so, so did you take the contract? No, I didn't. didn't? Take the con I okay. couldn't take the contract because contract was through the agent, through the agent. Cause he's connected to the club. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and that's another, like, weird situation because no agent is supposed to be like directly connected to the club. Mm. But I'm not going to say his name because, you know, yeah. he might be listening or whatever. But so it was just like a lot of weird, fishy stuff going on. And I sensed it a little bit when I was there, but it was a lot of weird stuff going on. So my friend was like, let me talk to you on, talk to him on your behalf. He was like, because I'm like, he knows me and like, I've been playing professionally for a long time. So he's not going to try to like he yeah. slide his way through it. So he talked to him and he, he like starts switching up the way he was talking and and he called me back he's like man this dude is screwing you over he's trying to screw you over don't do anything with him so I was like alright so I was disappointed because I was like obviously I'm good enough for this team but that um, that opportunity is gone so I was like started brainstorming what can I do I'm back here so I was like I'm just going to play semi-pro or whatever try to get connected to teams or whatever and just try to figure it all out so my friend was like email all these coaches I went to a couple of tryouts, but they were like one day tryouts and you can't really do anything in one day. And a lot of times if you don't have an agent, 
teams just put you on the back burner. Yeah. They like played me at forward. I've never played forward in my life. You know what Yeah, because you don't have somebody advocating. Exactly. So it's kind of like they just treat you like your extra body. Yeah, you're just an extra body there for numbers. So I didn't get a fair look. I was frustrated. I was just like in a position where I'm like, like I have the ability, like is this what God wants me to do? Talk to a lot of people that were like stick at it. So um, my semi-pro coach was like, hey, Nashville SC needs a couple of players for practice today. That's the professional team in Nashville. And I was like, sure, I could go out there and play. So I, I was really excited. I, was, I went out there, did really well, which was another confirmation in my mind where I was like, okay, I could do this. I'm competing with these guys. Then just they kept they needed more numbers, so they kept calling me out. And there was a time where I was training with them pretty consistently for like two months, training with them every day pretty much. And the coaches like really liked me. I was like asking them, hey, what can I do to improve? They were giving me all this information. And one of the coaches actually coached me when I was younger. And he's like, man, you've improved a lot. Um, you're a different player now. You've taken leaps and bounds. He's like, I never thought you'd be at this level right now. So just, I still train with them right now. And just being in a position where I'm like, okay, I get an insight into the professional lifestyle and all this, and I clearly could do it. You know what I'm yeah. trying to say? I'm, I'm not like a liability out there. I'm out there, I'm competing, and I'm doing really well. So pretty much did that. Um, still training with them. Um, played semi-pro soccer. Got connected to an agent from one of, my friends that plays professionally reached out to him. We talked, he seemed like a really good guy. I made sure I like did my research, talked to a lot of people, really good guy. So I just signed to him about a month ago. Okay. Yeah. Congrats. So, yeah. I appreciate that. So he's a really nice guy. He's really helping me out a lot. He's talking to a lot of teams for me and I'm just in the same position where I'm just training and hoping something opens up quick, but hopefully soon enough, something will open up because there's a new professional league called NISA. Mm-hmm. or whatever so that opens up a lot more doors but there was another situation where i was talking to this shows you how grimy the industry is again but not from my agent's part i was talking to a team i'm not gonna say where they are because they might be listening as well but super close they're pretty close to what you call to nashville and they were like they reached out to me because i played against them in semi-pro and they're like you're a very good player we want you to come in i was like all right and this was like sh- solely through me before i met the agent yeah. So I filled the agent in, in on it, and I was like, I'm going to go out there. Went out there. I was, like, really close with the captain. I was like, man, you're doing really well. I did really well. And he's like, I legit think I, ha- I I still have a chance to start on that team. And the coach really liked me. The owner called me. He's like, hey, we want you to come to preseason, and we'll go from there. This was, like, three weeks ago. I'm like, all right, preseason. If I go to preseason, I know what I'll do. Do what I got to do. I'll make the team. Go from there. So preseason comes along. He's like, I'll let you know details later. Preseason comes along. Don't you hear, hear nothing. Hear nothing. I'm yeah. like, this is weird. You know what I'm trying to say? So I'm like, I start calling him. No response. Then he texts me back like Thursday the next week. They're like, hey, Victor, you're a great player, but sorry, we don't need you anymore. I'm like, what? Like, you know what yeah. I'm trying to say? It's just an interesting like dynamic. I was like, okay, maybe they found somebody else that. Like, well, and it's just like there's no communication. and there's I know. No, and exactly. it's just a business. Like you're just exactly. the Exactly. And that's the thing. that I didn't take it personal. I was like, it's the business side of it. But you can still do a better job of communicating that instead of like shooting me an Instagram message or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's on Instagram as well. I slid in your DM. I know. It was just the, like, what? Like, you. you know what I'm trying to say? And the thing about that, it was like there was another team that was looking, that was trying to sign me. And they've seen me play a lot. They were like really interested in signing me. But I prioritized this Atlanta, Atlanta team. Or whatever. Damn. Because I was like, this is a good spot. Like, it's professional team as well. The other team is professional as well. But I prioritized that. And now 
the team that was trying to sign me, the other team doesn't have any funds for players anymore. Mm. So I kind of like struck out on both. So I was like hoping like, I was hoping like right now I'd be in either one, but now I struck out on both. But the good thing is I have an agent now. So yeah. connections are not a problem. There's always going to be opportunities. So I just got to keep working and well, eventually that, the right doors are open. Well, that's kind of a good segue actually. Yeah. I know we're running up on time over here, yeah. but so like the story and the ups and downs of yeah. just like, the experience mm-hmm. it's just been fascinating for sure for sure um and obviously the story will continue but yeah. so i'm really curious what your answer is going to be to this question but yeah. kind of going back to what we talked about earlier if there's one thing you could go back to at 18 yeah to tell yourself what would you like what would you tell yourself at 18 knowing what you know now that's that's interesting i think the biggest thing would i think there probably be two things stick to your script and in a sense of like i feel like in retrospect, a lot of things that I had to be, I think my whole life has been built around the concept of patience. Mm-hmm. Like from my parents conceiving me, 10 years having to wait, my dad having to wait 12 years to come to my dad. So majority of my life has been built around patience. patience. So sticking to the script of like being patient and sometimes things look like they aren't really working out, yeah. but eventually when you cross over to the other side, then it usually works out better than you ever ever thought. Because, like, I feel like me coming here 12 years later was better than me coming here at six or five or four because I would have been a completely different person. Yeah. I wouldn't have remembered Nigeria or whatever. So I think that would be the biggest thing is just, like, stick to your script. And in the sense of, like, also, like, with career moves and stuff, like, the thing a lot of times, the seduction of safety is a very dangerous thing. And I think we're in a space where people don't want to take chances. And mm. I think I actually heard you say it on one of your – podcast where you're like the fear of failure is a lot of times worse than failure itself yeah. and the actual failure itself so for me it's just like you got to embrace the concept of uncertainty and there's a lot of beauty and a lot of good things that come out on the other side of that yeah, yeah. i love that yeah for sure and what would be the second one i think i just love the fact that you just said yeah. the, the what was it the seduction of seduction safety. of safety it's dangerous it's really a dangerous thing Damn, it's, it's dangerous. That's good. I'm writing that down. <laughs> you should. Yeah, but pretty much, yeah. And what would be the second one? Second one would probably be just read a lot of books. I think absorb my, knowledge. Yeah, absorb knowledge and concept. I think working at Northwestern got me in the pattern of reading a lot. Just being around a space where I saw a lot of like intelligent people that were driven and like go getters, and like I saw like the patterns, and I saw reading was like a big part of people they were. And I think once I started, when I became a voracious reader, my life went from one place to a completely different level just because, and I think I heard a quote, it was like, I read my way out of every situation in life because like there's books on anything you want to learn out there. And in the past, when I was younger, 18 years old, I was like, man, reading is for squares. You know what I'm trying to say? But now I understand like the knowledge that comes from that and not just do you understand yourself more, you understand people more, you understand your environments more. And I think we're in a space where people struggle with purpose and figuring out what they want to do. I think the more you read and the more you understand all these things cumulatively, I think the more admonition you have to find your purpose. You know what I'm trying to say? So, yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I love it. My biggest, biggest thing. Well, awesome. Yeah. Well, Victor, I appreciate you coming on. Appreciate and sharing you. Appreciate this was you. awesome. It's a great conversation, man. It was. I mean, <laughs> it, 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 I'm just thinking through like all the different avenues we went through. Yeah, exactly. I'll make sh- I'll make sure to put all your like Instagram and sure. contact and all that in the show notes. But um, again, for everybody listening, and 
know, millennialmanhoodcip at gmail.com if you want to get a hold of us, millennialmanhood.net. Um, we'll just, you know, keep the story going and we'll talk to you guys later. Sure. See you guys.